Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Vernoy, and this is the podcast for therapists where we talk about the things that come up in our practices, the issues that affect therapists, and sometimes things that affect clients. And today we are once again joined by Stephon Lewis. And before the show, he was like, I know that you're probably going to have some sort of dad joke about imposter syndrome, but I don't know that I'm the one who has the place to say something like this. So... <laughs> Good attempt, Kurt. Good attempt. Well, well played. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us and coming on and talking about imposter syndrome here. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. I'm happy to be back on. This is going to be fun. Oh, Sivan, it's so good to have you here. We always love having friends of the show. So as you know, our first question is, who are you and what are you putting out into the world? I am Stevon Lewis. I'm a licensed psychotherapist, and I am putting out light and positivity into the world by discussing imposter syndrome and really getting people to find a way to attach to their success so that they don't feel like a fraud as they walk through life and do amazing things. So how did, how did you get into imposter syndrome in the first place? I don't know many people who get into imposter syndrome work without at least kind of some personal experience in this. So I have to imagine that there's some origin villain story that got you here. <laughs> A villain story. Okay. <laughs> Expose yourself, Stevan. be vulnerable. So my story is a bit different. I kind of, at an early age, I had to really lean into being myself. I recognized that I was going to be different or, you know, kind of experience life differently than other people. And so it was like either try to change myself to, you know, allow people to be more comfortable or more accepting of me, or just accept myself and let other people figure that out. And that was like, you know, elementary school. And so it's odd for me, or it's interesting when people have a tough time doing that. I'm like, just love on yourself and you'll be fine and everybody else will figure it out. But kind of to talk about how I got to imposter syndrome, I, I love all my clients. But I had like a set of clients. I did like an evaluation of, or an audit of like all my clients. And the ones that I really like got excited to work with were the ones that presented with like a similar set of experiences. And, you know, that that kind of drove me to do a little bit more research. And this is back in like 2017. And the rest is kind of history. I was like, oh, these are my folks. I need to only work with these folks because I feel like I do great work. And I feel like, you know, I help them and then they get the best out of this experience as well. You specifically focus in on high achievers as well and and how this interplay comes in. And you and I are aligned in this. I love this work. I love what you're doing on Instagram, like all the stuff where you're basically beating up on all of us. 
oh, oh, that, those are not the words that, I would choose. <laughs> yeah, I, fair enough, fair enough. You're pointing out that we're beating up on ourselves. How's that? Yes. yes. And it feels like there's a difference when we're talking about imposter syndrome and high achievers. And so what do therapists get wrong when they get a high achiever in their office and they're not necessarily addressing imposter syndrome in the way that that you might suggest that they would consider? Is there a way that we can ask that question without making our audience feel like they are imposters in what they have already done? <laughs> <laughs> hey, people out there who are listening to this, you're doing great. And we just want you to, you know, see if there's maybe a little growth edge or some some things that you know, you can help your clients a little bit better here. Steve Auden, what kind of advice do you have? Yeah. <laughs> I like it. I like it. We are all constantly building and supporting each other and all the folks out there that are struggling with things. So for me, I think with high achievers and maybe some what some therapists might miss is that there's a, a tendency to kind of treat the symptoms and not kind of look at the root cause. And so what happens is that you'll see someone come in and they'll have anxiety kind of symptoms or depressive kind of symptoms. And it doesn't really make sense because, you know, what we'll see is that they're really crushing it in life. They're doing a fantastic job. And so we might kind of say like, they're all just high functioning depression or high functioning anxiety. But I think it takes some effort to kind of pull back the layers to say, well, what what's going on that you're not able to connect to the success you're having? And as you start to ask more questions about like childhood history and, you know, family of origin history, or experience that they've kind of just had across their the lifespan, then you start to kind of make these connections to say, oh, there's something about you or about your experience to where you've been told or received a message and adopted it, that for whatever reason, you aren't responsible for the good things that happen to you. Say more, because... <laughs> <laughs> In my practice, I work with a lot of high achievers too, and uh, typically high achieving teens and their families. But I get a lot of like, yeah, I did that. And then there's just kind of this minimizing of like, you know, sure, I, I agree that this accomplishment was done. It's here's a checklist on that task. Now I need to fuel that feeling more. That's exactly it is high achievers are kind of what I say, addicted to the pursuit of achievements. Yeah. Yeah. So like they are constantly chasing the next goal and the next thing. So once they kind of crest the hill, you'll love this because you're a cyclist too. They don't enjoy the downhill. And that's the problem is like, you know, that's the reward. And so you've disconnected yourself from the actual good part that you earn. And so what you tell your brain as a result of that, the message it gets is you're not really doing anything of value because once you've done something, it no longer retains any of its importance or significance. You've moved on to, I am now climbing another hill. And again, I don't think it's intentional, but what happens is your brain says, well, we aren't doing anything because we're always working hard to get somewhere. I, I like this, you know, because even, you know, speaking from personal experience, going downhill on the bike, like you, you start making up like things to do to make the downhill worthwhile. Like, all right, I got to get Strava to like hit the next mile marker or speed marker that I haven't hit before. That's just like, I love that getting addicted to the pursuit. Mm -hmm. And it seems like it really lends itself to moving forward. And, and I think there's reward because each time you get further and further and further, there is that 
you know, there's that second hill, that second mountain, that third mountain, that fourth mountain, like you just keep going and keep going and it fuels the energy. And I think I was actually talking to someone yesterday who's also a high achiever. And she was saying, like, I just can't sit still. I don't know what to do with myself when I'm not doing something. And so to me, it feels like it builds this life that doesn't allow for celebration of what you've done, but it keeps you very well uh, equipped to be productive, right? And get lots of little tiny hits of praise from other people that then you, of course, dismiss. But like, it's that, that little bit of stuff that just keeps you moving forward and potentially keeps you from thinking about all the reasons why you can't allow that to hit. I mean, it seems like there's some stuff that you've talked about, like commonalities of the people who present with this. It seems like there might be some stuff that they're just not wanting to think about too, right? <laughs> keep yeah, busy, don't sure. keep your head down. Don't think about all the crap. And, and that's the paradox, right? Is that you have people, you know, high achievers who are constantly doing something. And so no fault of their own, their self-worth starts to get attached to their accomplishments. Yeah. And so in order for me to feel value or feel good about myself, I have to continue doing. Also, we live in a world where praise is, is given to a lot of the traits that someone with imposter syndrome will exhibit. So again, working hard, accomplishing a lot, staying late at work, being very detail oriented because I'm wanting to make sure that, you know, nobody figures out that, you know, I don't really have what it takes. Those things get rewarded and they get applauded. And the thing that's missing is the, I guess the catalyst for why that's happening. It's all done to kind of cover up. And I think it's coming from a negative place. And so part of my work is trying to get people to uh, attach these, I guess, good behaviors for a good reason. So that it's not coming out of a place of fear or anxiety, you know, that you're going to be found to not really be as talented or that your past accomplishment doesn't matter. Yeah, there's there's like, like you were saying, there's no time spent in, I guess, kind of relishing in the idea that you've done something well. It's I have to continue doing things that are amazing or keep accomplishing in order for me to have value or add value. And so they have these lofty dreams and goals that they are constantly chasing because they have the ability and skills to do so. Also, I look for balance. Like there's also the missing piece of, but you also don't talk about the things you've done already. And so I try to get people to live in a space of where you can be happy and, and proud of what you've done while you're still working to be and do more. Thryzer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thryzer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate up front. From the client's perspective, Thryzer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thryzer manages the claims end-to-end -end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thryzer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thryzer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. The other element that you were talking about that I was thinking that was also really praised is humility. Oh, you struck a chord with me now, Katie. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh man. So, so I have a gripe with all of society. Okay. <laughs> okay. Tell us more. <laughs> everyone on planet earth, but myself, no, <laughs> no imposter here that our definition of humility is not one that I think I subscribe to. I think that people operate with a definition of humility that goes something like this, that I ought to not talk about the things I've done as much in order to kind of not appear as conceited or pompous or better than everybody else. And my definition is is tweaked a bit. It says that I don't think humility is really talking about what you've done less or what you've accomplished less. It's not making people feel less or treating people less than because of what you've accomplished. And I think that's the difference. So if I go out and I play basketball and I score 40 points, that's just a fact, right? Like that's just something I did in that game. Why can't I talk about that? It's just as real as if my name is Stevon. I don't see any problem with that. Now, if I say, well, you guys all suck as basketball players because you aren't as <laughs> yeah. good as me because I scored 40 points and you didn't, that's different, right? And so I think what people are trying not to do is the latter. And what they do then is send a message to themselves that like, I'm not talking about what I've done that was of quality. So then maybe I haven't really done anything of quality. It's kind of the message the brain is used. Yeah. I'm sitting here trying not to turn this into a therapy session for myself. And <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, because I am one of those people where it's like, okay, yeah, I've accomplished something. And like, you know, I've got a, a marathon coming up here in a couple of weeks. And I'm, you know, I've done a bunch of them before. You know, this is kind of getting back into some of the things that I really enjoy. But there's that part of me that's like really struggling with like, I don't want to sign up for the next marathon yet, but I'm already looking forward to that next achievement sort of thing. Like, you know, once I get through 26.2 miles, like there's a free banana at the end, then I start looking at the next thing. So, you know, this is guiltily, you know, just a little bit of working through my own stuff, but also trying to turn this into something like, all right, you've got this great theoretical idea that you're talking about here. How does this play out in sessions with clients who are addicted to that pursuit or who are you know, just kind of like, okay, yeah, that's done. I'm ready to do something. You know, the ones that Katie's talking about of like, I can't sit still. What does that look like in sessions? It looks like me slowing things down. So the way you speak about it, it's like really pressured. It's I've got to get on to the next thing. Okay. So I'm going to reframe that as I want, <laughs> I want to do the next thing. Yeah. <laughs> And cut Stevon off in the process. <laughs> I, I love it. I love it. I like that change in language because I'm huge on language. So that's really good for you to say it's not a need, it's a want. That tempers kind of the, the demand you've placed on yourself. So you want to do this next thing. That's cool, right? You're always going to want to do a next thing because that's the type of person you are. You are a person that does not stop doing things. You will always be doing something. What you're not doing is also congratulating yourself or acknowledging what you've done and what you're doing right now. And I think that that's a disservice to you so that after you've accomplished something, there's all this hard work and you're attaching yourself to the hardware. I got to work really hard to get to this next goal. You get to the goal and immediately you move on. What I ask people, and this is this is an interesting thing, like so for yourself, you being a dad, you have kids. I'd ask you, would you do that to your children? Like if they worked really hard to accomplish something, would you like, ah, well, you know, congrats. And then say, hey, what are you going to do next immediately? And oftentimes what I get is that, no, they would not. And so I'm saying, why do you treat yourself that way? If you wouldn't do it to somebody else, why would you do that to you? Because it's too late for me and my kids can do something <laughs> different. 
Because my kids have more value than I do. Oh, oh, that's stung. That's stung. Ouch. Ouch. But that's how it is, right? Is that they treat other people in a way that I'm just trying to get them to treat themselves. Like if they had a friend who accomplished something, they would celebrate their friend to no end. Oh, this is amazing. I'm so glad you did that. Let's tell everybody. They won't do that for themselves. And I'm saying if it's okay for your friend, why couldn't it be okay for you? So I can wear my marathon medal for two days rather than just one. Is <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god! It took you twenty six point two miles. Wear it for twenty six point two more miles. Like like wear it for all the training you did. You know, you don't just wake up and run that distance. You know, you had to put a lot of effort, a lot of sacrifice, a lot of time from family, from work, factoring or fitting in time to training runs and stuff like that. You did all that work to not really sit and and revel in that for any bit of time. And I'm not saying you're going to live there in these past accomplishments, because I I definitely don't think that what you're saying is like, if I'm saying slow down, I'm telling you to live in mediocrity. I'm saying, you mean you can't just enjoy this for, I don't know, another week or two? Sure. And I think that some of this stuff deals with culture. And, you know, part of this is, you know, marathon culture and that kind of stuff. And oh, there's a marathon culture. I've never heard. Oh, of totally. Cool. Yeah. Like, you know, there's there's kind of a community sort of thing of like, you know, how long you can talk about like, you know, what's your personal best? Like, if it's more than like five years ago, that's not representative of like where you're at as a runner sort of thing. Like, you have to start qualifying it. Like, yeah, I, I ran, you know, a 309 marathon like 10 years ago. I'm I'm not in that kind of a space anymore. I'm going out and enjoying this one for this, but that's that's a community of marathon runners. And I have to imagine that any sorts of communities are going to have their own versions of this, whether it's based in, I don't know, racism, sexism, ableism, any of this kind of stuff where there's just kind of certain internalized aspects of this. You know, I can laugh and joke and poke fun at myself of things that I do like to accomplish. And I recognize my vantage point on this, but are there other community type things where you're seeing this kind of stuff come up with clients? Sure. Like, I think that when you start to talk about like, you know, maybe racism as, as an example, you know, you put pressure on yourself to become the representative of said race. If you're in, you know, spaces where there aren't a ton of people that look like you, or if we're talking about sexism, you're the only woman in a, in a space. And so there's more pressure you put on yourself to be all things, to be the best version, because I am now a representative of all women or all black men or all whatever. And I, I think that's unfair for us to kind of accept from people. And so what I you know, try to get people to do is kind of push back against this tendency to take ownership over how others are responding to, or I guess, kind of treating me, right? Like, so I think that for me, I have a physical kind of response or like, I'll have a feeling about what's happening to me. And I try to get people to say, use that feeling to do more investigation. Do you immediately need to take ownership over the fact that maybe you're doing something or have done something or that you need to now prove to others that you are what they don't think you are? Like, I'm okay with other people telling themselves their own truth about all sorts of things, as long as it doesn't, you know, negatively impact me too much. And so I think like the compassion piece is really important. So when you talk about like the community saying, well, you know, the 309 was five years ago underlying that is this best is that you need to always be improving and being a better version, which realistically, like if we're talking about age, like the older you get, the harder or more difficult it'll be to continue to perform at that level. And so it's like, where's the compassion we're giving to ourselves 
or to other folks to kind of say like, hey, are you doing what's best expected for you based on what you are, what you have and where you are in this moment? And if someone is expecting you to do more, then do you need to take that on? Well, and I think there's other elements to it, because I think when you're talking about being kind of whether it's the token or the representative or owning what people think about all black men or all women or whatever it is, I think there's that element of feeling like you need to behave a certain way and and taking that on. But I think there's also those additional elements of uh, being told that you're an imposter, you're the token, you're the you were just hired because of, or you're you're invalidated, or there's you know obviously microaggressions, those kinds of things. And so to me, it seems like, are you an imposter, or are people just telling you that you are? <laughs> right. <laughs> Do right, you have right, imposter right. syndrome, or are you just internalizing racism, sexism, mm-hmm. ableism? you know, all that kind of stuff. How do you sort that out with people? Because I feel like you get intersectional and there's so many different reasons why people might be being told that they're not Mm -hmm. good enough. And you're you're absolutely right. And so some of my work that is like a section of it, right? That for, I mean, we're going to kind of be open and honest here on this podcast that I have clients who are black males and being a high achiever, they've kind of gotten to places in their kind of profession companies or organizations to where the higher up they go, the less people look like them. And so in those environments, they do get treated differently. And what I try to get them to do, and like you talked about, is that, you know, it's this internalized kind of racism or like this internalized experience of, well, people are treating me differently or they are responding differently to my passion or, you know, I've got to be really cautious about like not appearing angry or that I'm, you know, if I check out or pull back some, then I'm not also going to be viewed as lazy. You really have to contend with those things. Also, I am working with them to say, don't take ownership over that. That's the environment. So what I try to talk to them about is that you're in an environment where there aren't many people that look like you. Why would you operate from a narrative that suggests that this was made for you to be successful, for you to thrive, and for you to grow? I saw a good quote on the internet once on social media where it said, like, you know, when a flower doesn't grow, we don't blame the flower. We change the environment. And so, you know, letting them take that kind of compassion or or place or stance with themselves that like, is this environment designed for you to be the best version of yourself? If it's not, then let's throw that or take that off the table as something you need to be striving for and say, how can you be successful in a place that is not designed for you to thrive and to be successful easily? It seems like there is an element of sorting out what's environment and what's more internal. And it seems like that's pretty messy. But what about kind of what we've grown up with? I mean, what are we bringing to the table that can impact this? Because it seems like for you, you thrived in environments where you weren't necessarily looking like everybody else in the room. And so how do we dig into all the pieces, I guess, is what I'm asking. Oh, you're going to take it back. People are going to get mad at you now because you're going to talk about their <laughs> I have parents' parental issues. <laughs> so, so some of the commonalities like I kind of found when you know research supports this is that for people who struggle with imposter syndrome, a lot of that stuff started early on for them. So they had experiences where they had parents who were really critical, you know, kind of always telling them little things, sit up straight, hold your fork like this, you know, smile when you're talking or look at someone directly in the eye. Like, and again, I don't think these are bad parents. I don't think they hated their kids. I think that they just wanted their kids to be the best version of themselves. But what you hear is that you're getting critiqued more than you're getting praised. And so the feeling becomes then that like, I must be doing things wrong or incorrectly, you know, again, in families where, and you see this oftentimes, maybe like immigrant families, 
Uh, my best friend's Nigerian. And so like academics are paramount thing. You don't bring home an A, you might as well have brought home a fail. Like that's yeah. that's it. And so there's this thing, again, we're sending a message that unless you're the best, you are the worst. And, and kids internalize that. So praise isn't really given. Critiques are given more. Also, then you have people who are coming from families where they're the only one who kind of has done the thing that they're doing. So the level of success that they have, no one else in the family has really attained. That starts to say, like, what's so special about me? Because I came from them, so I must be more like them. I don't know that this is like genuine. I must have lucked out somewhere. So like there's all these things that happen like in our childhood or like, you know, as we kind of grow and evolve that send messages to us that like maybe you don't really have what it takes. And like there's all these reasons why you shouldn't be where you are. And I'm trying to get people to focus on the other side of that of like, yeah, that could be possible. Also, you are where you are. So then let's talk about why that is. Well, it sounds like underneath that is really working through feelings of avoiding shame as opposed to what you're talking about, like embracing more mindful of like being towards the moment and following kind of feelings of belonging or feelings of, you know, creating a new path for yourself. Which you're absolutely right. And it's really difficult to do when you don't feel supported in doing that, right? Like, I think that's the part that becomes difficult because I'm wanting you to not feel bad about what you've done and, and who you are and how you operate, that you're deserving of that stuff. And you're contending with the idea that there's all these reasons why, for all intents and purposes, what I am doing shouldn't be possible. And so it's, you know, that pushback between what's happening internally and what you're getting externally. And so I try to operate from a place that's really logical and rational and saying like, well, if the evidence really supports that you do have what it takes, let's just go with that. Like, let's get rid of this inner bully, this, you know, voice that's telling you, hey, you don't have it. Look at your family. You're so different from them. Nobody else in your family is doing this stuff. You're in this room. You're the only person in here. They're going to find out you don't belong in this room at some point. Let go of all that. And, and let's go with the part that like, you know, the other side of that story is, but you are here. So how did that happen? And people will easily dismiss the good and attach to the negative side of things. And it comes from a fear because I think what we tell ourselves is that if I focus on where things can possibly go wrong, then I can protect those better. And that may be true. You're also ignoring what's going right. And so we put these blinders on and that's problematic for me. Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. It seems like there's just such a level of fear and a worry, a lack of self-trust that if something were to go wrong, if I let my hand off the wheel a little bit, that I'm going to fail, fail miserably. I'm going to not only be a disappointment to myself, to whoever I'm doing these things for, but to all people who look like me or whatever, and also potentially to my family, to all of the people. Like I'm going to disappoint every single person. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's so interesting. As you were talking, I was just really struck by, you know, one of the things that popped in my head, I guess, was Dr. Joy DeGruy's work about post-traumatic slave syndrome, which is really looking at if you are successful, 
you are then used. It is almost dangerous to be successful. And so there's also a legacy of that for Black people, I think. I'm going to defer to you on that. But it seems like there's that element of like success is so fraught and it's so tentative and so scary. And so like even if I achieve this thing, what does that even mean? I don't know. Maybe I'm going way off the rails. But like that was what was coming in my mind when you were talking is this notion of success being terrifying. Mm -hmm. I love the language you use because there was a lot of really high extremes for me. It's I'm going to not only fail, but fail miserably. I'm going to disappoint everyone. And that's the narrative that people take on. But to your point, yes, I do think that that's, you know, so like when we are talking about being in groups that, you know, may have been historically marginalized, then absolutely we can be exploited for our gifts. Like that's not a uncommon thing. I mean, capitalism suggests we ought to do that, right? Yeah. I think that What happens, and there's another author, I forget his name, he has a book called Plantation Theory, and he talks about how this happens kind of in corporate America, where you are not rewarded kind of financially or anything for your, if you're like a person of color or in one of the modernized communities, for your success and your great talents, they will try to use the word leverage, your your abilities and skills, and not really reward or or compensate you for that, much like on a plantation, right? And so I think there is this fear of if I am too successful and I stand out too much, I'm going to have a spotlight on me. And having a spotlight on me could be a bad thing. And so now we've attached succeeding too much as not being good, or like we need to be fearful of that or become more paranoid or anxious or worried about that from a good place because things have happened. Yeah. Also, if you're a high achiever, it's hard to not want to continue to do yeah. things well. Yeah, it's like you're, you keep running towards the fire. Because <laughs> <laughs> you can't you can't not do it because everything else will feel like mediocrity. Because I, I pose that question to people. I'm like, oh, well, if you don't want to feel you know, nervous about accomplishing something or you don't want to have this fear that you're going to fail, then just stay where you are because it sounds like you've got that down and don't do anything more. And that's like repulsive to them. They're like, absolutely, I can't do that. I have to. I can't. I'm like, well, no, you're fine here. Let's just stay here and don't do anything more. No, 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 no. Now I'm the I'm the one with the issue when I point that as a as, as an option for them. That's hilarious. You know, you're talking about this in marginalized communities too. And what I'm thinking of is there's also a lot of, you know, majority presenting cultures that have things like tallest poppy you know, sorts of things where people who stand out get cut down because even just the culture around them tends to, you know, not want to disrupt things too much, that this is something where there's, I think, an intersectionality here that definitely does come within marginalized communities. But this is probably a lot more common from places that don't celebrate, you know, growth or pathways as much just because of the nature of whatever community it's in too. I I agree. I think that for whatever reason, there's this this tendency for difference to be seen as negative. So like if you're saying, again, you're doing something innovative, there's pushback. And I don't know that that's kind of only reserved for marginalized communities. I think like when you are outside the norm, I'm using air quotes here, then there's some kind of reticence around what you're doing and what you're accomplishing. When in actuality, like the things we value and stuff that's made life better for all of us have been because somebody was like, yeah, nah, this doesn't work. I'm going to do something different. And they push past that. Yeah. But for whatever reason, whenever that's presented to us, you know, that person is going to have to feel a lot. So it's 
in you know not making things political or anything like that. I mean, it's just everyday things. I mean, the the move from away from like I don't know fossil fuels to like using electricity more like that's like not cool. I remember you know when the airport we had to start taking our shoes off and stuff after nine eleven. It was like that was like you know oh my god they're scanning us and it's a bad thing. It's like also it might be making us more you know safer and you know not to say that it won't be misused and we are now targeting specific folks like that's a human error problem but again the things that make life better for us the internet again it can be misused but i think there's like this fear again of like when you start to do something different and it starts to be more successful people don't know what to make of it and there's like this i don't know caution or fear that it's not going to be okay or that the difference is negative and so like when kurt you're talking about that it, it's like yeah you do probably get pushback for just being different and doing things well, because people are like, well, wait, what are you going to do with that? I, I think it's like a power thing, maybe even. Well, I think it seems like, you know, and, and we're getting a little bit low on time. So I want to kind of make sure we're getting back to the imposter syndrome, but it seems like there's so many different factors at play. There's kind of how success was acknowledged or not as you were growing mm -hmm. up, how perfectionistic maybe your parents were with your behavior and, and how much they celebrated or didn't. And then there's kind of whatever situation you're in, whether it's, you know, that you're different from the people around you or you're standing up and doing something innovative and being cut down. It seems like there's external forces that are basically telling you or, or testing you potentially, mm -hmm. and then your own response to all these other things. And so we can't change society. We can't tell society to redefine humility. We can't change folks from feeling suspicious of different folks or, or people with different ideas. So what does healing look like for someone, especially for a high achiever with imposter syndrome in today's society? It's for me, I talk about the term kind of radical acceptance of self. And so it's the idea of healing is getting free from for me. So all those things you mentioned are real and they are happening you get to control how you want to choose to respond to that. And I think that it becomes easier, maybe, or you get to be better at enduring or, or, or kind of navigating that stuff if you can align with who you are and what you're putting out into the world. And so that, you know, radical acceptance self to me is kind of saying, hey, I can love myself. I can be proud of myself, even though I know I'm not perfect. And I'm still working to be a better version of me. And so when somebody says something about me that suggests that I do have an imperfection or that whatever my you know imperfection is, is not okay, I can be okay with that because I'm working to improve it. But also I am good as I am right now. Well, I think sometimes the person that's telling you that you have an imperfection and it's not okay is yourself. Yeah, that, that's where you have to come with the compassion part is like, hey, you don't have to be perfect to be good. <laughs> Where can people find out more about you and the work that you're doing? Oh, wow. Uh, so for me, I have a unique name, uh, Stevon Lewis. There aren't many of us out there. So if you Google Stevon Lewis, you'll find all my stuff. My website is stevonlewis.com. Instagram, I am very active on there doing a bunch of stuff that seems like I'm, you know, attacking people, but I'm not. It's coming from a place <laughs> of love. <everywhere>. Uh, <laughs> it is. It that, is. It's wonderful. Yeah. And that's Stevon. That's at Stevon Lewis, MFT, the letters Mary Francis Thomas. I mean, you go to my uh, website, stevonlewis.com, you'll find everything. I just wrote a journal called Silencing Your Inner Bully. It's an acknowledgement journal to help people kind of work through their own imposterism. 
and uh, quiet that inner bully's voice. I love that. And we'll include links to all of that in our show notes over at mtsgpodcast.com and follow us on our social media. If you like our show and want to find other ways to support us, please consider supporting us through Patreon. And until next time, I'm Kurt Woodhelm with Katie Vernoy and Steve Lewis. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code MODERN gets you two free months. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes.